Well, I'm excited to uh, bring message today. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 1. We will be in Matthew chapter 1. Um, as you guys are turning there, I have a little uh, group participation activity that I like to sometimes kick off with. Uh, with the person next to you or whoever you're with around you, would you share real quick, have you ever had a time in your life where you just you felt cheated? Like something happened, like, you know, I, just, I felt like this wasn't the right thing. I felt cheated in this situation. Go ahead, real quick, the person next to you. This is group participation. You can talk to them. My in-laws are in the house, and so maybe they're like, yeah, the day that I found out I was getting Eric as a son-in-law, I felt cheated. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> which, by the way, if I'm part of any of your stories you're sharing, please catch me later. We need to talk. <laughs> I might be oblivious to it, I don't know. Uh, maybe you're like uh, a guy in Malaysia who felt cheated in 2006. Um, have you ever received a bad phone bill, anybody? Uh, I have a few times with AT&T, we've got stuff where I uh, did not enjoy talking on the phone and dealing with stuff, and actually all of them, Sprint, you name it, I've had trouble with them. It may just be me. But it encouraged me a little bit because a man in Malaysia in 2006 named Yahya Wahab, think I think I pronounced that right, you wouldn't know the difference, felt cheated. You see, he got a phone bill that was bigger than usual. Opened up his phone bill, and in fact, it was, listen to this, $218 trillion. No, that's not a typo. Let me say that again. Got a phone bill from his uh, phone provider for $218 trillion. I thought my fees were bad. Um, see, the phone company told Yahya that he did, he, if he didn't pay up within 10 days, $218 trillion, he would be thrown in jail. See, the charge was a clerical mistake because it came from a line that Yahya had closed after his father died. And so he got this bill that uh, was supposedly his dad's line that his dad had passed away, closed it, and he had proof. And I looked and looked and looked, and there was no record of what actually came of it. But Yahya's like, bring it. I'm ready for this battle. Have you ever felt cheated before in your life where you felt like, you know what? I, I just felt like something was done wrong to me in some situation, some form. I, I was the right party, and yet I got wronged in the situation. If you can identify with that one, you're human. Congratulations. That's something we all deal with. But the second thing I'll tell you is congratulations because I think today you can identify with Joseph as we were talking about this series and stepdad and how relate to him and how he felt cheated probably as we look at his example. You see, we're doing a series called Stepdad, and if this is your first time coming, you, you didn't come last week. Uh, it's a whole uh, series about the nativity through the eyes of Joseph. We often look through Mary, and we look through Jesus and the, the shepherds, but we don't talk about Joseph. Joseph would have been in this situation, not Jesus' biological father. So he would have been either his stepdad or adoptive father, however you want to look at it. And just to imagine the challenges that he would have went through thinking, this is not my son, but even more so, the task he has to go through. I'm blessed. I shared last week that, you know, I, I come from a blended family, and my, my stepdad came to my life when I was two years old. And so I know how well a person can come in and love a child that's not their own, because he did an amazing job with that. But at the same time, there are challenges that they have gone through. And I just imagine even for him, what was it like for him with me growing up thinking, this isn't my biological son, but I love him as though he's my own. He did a great job with it. What about Joseph? How would it have been for him? As we talked about last week, being a 14 to 17-year-old man at this time, starting out a family, starting out his new profession in life, starting out his new way of being, and all of a sudden, hey, by the way, your, your, your uh, soon-to-be wife is pregnant with a child that's not your own, and you're going to raise him as your own. 
Just imagine what's going on. So as we unpack and learn more about the nativity, about what God says about us, about what Jesus is, all through the life of Joseph, uh, I want to tell you the big idea that you're going to see in Joseph's life today is this, that, that grace comes with a sacrifice. Now, I think Joseph embodies this, and I want to show you an example of what's going on, but I want to say it again. Grace, anytime grace is exhibited, a sacrifice has to be made. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 1, where we're actually just going to read 18 through 19. It's pretty short, because I want to keep the shock value any farther. Now, many of you have grown up, you've, you've seen the nativity play at church, you've seen kids do it, you've read it, you've watched TV shows, you, you've done this your whole life, but I want you to, best you can, approach it like this is the first time you're ever hearing the story. And, and so where we stop, stop in your understanding of the story. It does not go any farther, and imagine and place yourself in Joseph's situation if you can because I think it's important to do. Uh, and so Matthew chapter 1 uh, is your opening, and hopefully you're there. It starts out with a whole genealogy going from all the way from Abraham all the way to Jesus to show his lineage, to show that he's the true Messiah, that he's the one that the Old Testament has told, like this guy, that there's going to be one that's going to come and save everyone. Now, they all thought it was going to be a king like David, this powerful monarch figure that's going to come and probably conquer Rome and be established to the Jewish uh, inhabitants back as they once were. And, and lo and behold, they're shocked. They get this lowly, nothing Messiah baby born in a manger that they did not expect it. And so Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 17, he tells us that these are all the generations from Abraham all the way to Jesus. In verse 18, it says this, and follow along with me. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. See, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's ever made you raise an eyebrow, it's okay. Uh, it does for a lot of people. And verse 19 says, So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. You're caught up to the situation. Joseph, uh, Mary is engaged, it says, but what's weird is the very next thing. It says, her husband, Joseph. Uh, what's going on there? It, it's a custom thing that we're going to unpack, understanding a little bit about the Jewish engagement, what's going on. But I understand he's ready to get married to this girl, this, the one he's been looking forward to, and suddenly it comes known that she's pregnant with a child that's not his own. The story comes out that it's through the Holy Spirit. This is, this is God's kid. Imagine what you would be thinking in that situation. And so Joseph, it says, I love being a what? Righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. To, to understand the story, to understand what's going on here, you, you have to understand Joseph's position a little bit he's in. For, first, you have to understand a, a Jewish engagement and what it looked like. You see, in Jewish engagement, the word engagement comes from this, this concept, this idea called betrothed, or, or the Hebrew word is kedushin. It's a kiddushin. It's this Hebrew term where they would come and begin this engagement process. It, it was a very long, often a year-long process. And you'd have this whole thing going on. And whenever you uh, and, and entered into this covenant relationship, from day one of an engagement, you would be considered husband and wife from that moment on. And so they come in and they're beginning this relationship. And that's why it says she's engaged, but her husband, Joseph, because from the time they entered into this engagement, Mary would be his wife and he would be her husband from that moment forward. And so they would come and they'd take this contract, contract called a ketubah and, and they would sign it and it would legalize, kind of like a marriage contract saying that, that they were committed to one another, that this, was who, this is who they were going to be betrothed to. 
And what would happen is the family would come in of, of the husband's side, the groom's side, and they'd pay a bridal price called a mahar. And they'd pay this price to more or less ensure the relationship, a, a dowry, if you will. Now, some of us read that and think, man, this is kind of a very primitive thing. These wives were pieces of property. They're just selling them off, and people get upset about that. But, but it was much more than that. You have to understand customs and culture, what's going on here. You see, you would have matchmakers that would help, but, but children would be decided. They would, they would organize and construct their marriage. Say, listen, these two are going to come together, and, and they're going to be husband and wife. And it would be strategic a lot of times. But they'd pay a bride price for them up front. And you say, well, she's a piece of property, right? They're, they're buying her. Well, not necessarily. As I love Adam Hamilton, a guy who wrote a book on this whole thing called Faithful, said of bride prices. He said, according to one commentator, the mahar, uh, or the bride price, was comparable to the price of a one-bedroom house. It's kind of what the price would be as one example. And obviously that would change from time to time, depending on the, the, the girl and her family situation, her beauty, other aspects, her, her, her qualities, if she was great at certain traits, all those would affect the bride price and what it would be. But it says there was a certain logic behind this custom. You see, in a patriarchal society where a father, a man of the household-led society such as this one, the father of the bride was losing a daughter who was working in and for the family. And so families would all work in the family, and you would support the family. And so you would have kids, and they'd be growing up and learning the family trades, and they'd be part. They'd be, for lack of better words, like one of the employees helping out. And so when they get married off, she would become part of and serve another family. They would lose a source of income to help provide and to feed the family. And so the bride price was a compensation for the father's loss. And so they would pay saying, listen, here's to kind of offset the loss. Not only would it do that, but a portion of the bride price would also be set aside as a kind of insurance policy for the bride should her husband die prematurely or divorce, divorce her as to care for her. You see, in this time, you did not necessarily save up for retirement with a 401k, hedge funds, or whatever you had. You, you had kids. Those are your retirement funds, right? You, you would have those grown up. You would have your kids, and you would stay, and they would take care of you. A lot's changed, right? No. Uh, and so uh, that, that's what you would do. Your kids would take care of you. And so if you were a widow, if you were a woman who could not have kids or your husband and wife could not have kids, you can imagine this would be disastrous for you. And so as a wife, if your husband died or he divorced you and you were a widow or a divorcee and suddenly you were no longer able to, to have children with anyone, you had no children, you, you would be very desolate in your life. It would be a difficult way to live. Most men would not marry you again after this. You would not have a hard time finding another husband to take you in. You would find it difficult to provide for yourself. And so in some ways, this dowry was an insurance policy. If anything happened to this guy, you would be taken care of. It's kind of like a life or death policy, if you will, that we have nowadays. And where if anything happens to me prematurely, I know my family is going to be cared for. And so in a lot of ways, it was like that. And you see in the Old Testament example with Jacob and Rachel, and to get an idea of how much this costs, Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and what happens? He works for seven years to pay this bride price. It wasn't always in cash and hands. It was sometimes, I will serve you, build up your family's wealth, and, and do this. And we know with Jacob's story, not only does he do that for Rachel, but his, you know, J the father tricks him and gives him Leah instead. And so he does it for another seven years, 14 years, he gives up to pay this bride price. And so that's one aspect that would take part in this contract, that the groom side would buy the rights, buy the privilege to enter into this contract relationship. Not only that, the groom would also pay what's called a matan. It was a gift to, to uh, more or less ensure to the bride herself. It was often several months' worth of salary. 
Can you imagine that several months worth of salary and then saying, listen, this is, it was a covenant saying, listen, this is my insurement that I want to take care of you. In a lot of ways, in our culture and time, it's similar to an engagement ring. It's saying, here's my token of commitment that I will follow through and I'm going to marry you someday. I want you to be my wife. And just like if the groom uh, breaks off that engagement, uh, it's up to her if she wants to give the ring back or keep it or not. That's what it is. And so it's a similar situation. So you have all this indebtedness going into this situation being paid for it. And you're saying, well, what happened? So for this year time, they would be engaged. And during this year time, the, the, the groom would say, listen, I've paid. We are husband and wife. We're not consummating our marriage. We're not living together. But they would then go back to their dad's father's house, and they would build on a portion of the house for them to come and live in. And that's what they would do. That whole time, they're building on a house, on their father's house to live in. Now, now, can I chase a rabbit trail, which is really cool about Scripture? Because you need to understand this, parents and people, everybody. Listen, marriage is a symbol, something that mimics God's relationship with us here on earth. And that's why it bothers me sometimes when people don't take marriage seriously. God established marriage and families to be a symbolic thing that would point directly to him. Our marriages are to show people, listen, this is what God's all about, this covenant, this commitment, this love, this adoration, all this. You have in the Bible, often the church is described as the bride of Christ, and Christ is considered the groom. If you have your Bibles, jog with me over to John chapter 14. I want to show you something real quick. Keep your fingers where you're at. If you have trouble with this, then you can just listen to me read it. But John chapter 14, because I want to show you something neat about Scripture. As you're turning over John chapter 14, again, I tell you, the groom at this point would say, listen, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to go to my father's house, prepare our house so that whenever I come back, I, I will marry you. We will be officially, we will come in concert. We will come be together and live in my father's house. And look what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 2 through 3. He first starts out with verse 1. says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but also believe in me. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. He says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you, that where I am, you also may be. You know that where I'm going. You see, this imagery they hear is a betrothal-type situation where Jesus is like, listen, I've, I've put the gift of the Holy Spirit in you as my endowment, my, my commitment to you. You are mine. You are my child. I'm, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place, and there will come a day where I'll come and we'll be in fullness together. Do, do you see the mirror imagery here? It's amazing when you begin to understand cultures and customs, what's going on in the situations. Now turn back to Matthew, if you'll allow me. So we see that they're engaged. But that's not the issue, is right, that she's engaged and that Joseph is her husband. The issue is what? Verse 2. At the end of verse 1, sorry, we discover that she was pregnant. And we find out very quickly, this is not Joseph's kid. She's pregnant before they consummate her. She's pregnant before they are fully uh, husband and wife, before everything has come together. She is pregnant. Something's wrong here. This is not his kid. What's going on? You have to understand this time and culture, husbands could divorce their wives for infidelity. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. I know we're all over Scripture, but I want to connect God's Word together. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 20 through 22. Listen to this talks about uh, a wife whose uh, engagement, who's unfaithful or whatever. It says, but if this accusation is true and no evidence of the young woman's virginity is found, they will bring the woman into the door of her father's house and the men of her city will stone her to death. 
for she has committed an outrageous uh, outrage in Israel by being promiscuous while living in her father's house. You must purge the evil from you. You see, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the woman, uh, the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now we hear this and like, wow, what a primitive evil thing. You have a situation in Scripture where it says, listen, if you find out that she has been unfaithful before you're married, biblically you could say you're supposed to stone her from death and rid yourself of this evil. <coughs> Let that sink in for a second while I get a sip of my drink. The law actually required her death. Now, can I say something? This wasn't often practiced, but biblically, the law actually required her death. When I read this, I'm like, what in the world is going on here, right? Like in today's culture, you don't think, okay, listen, you know, so-and-so is unfaithful. Everyone grab your rocks. Let's go outside. Let's end this. Let's get this over with. Talk about, talk about abstinence. Talk about students being scared of anything. Like, listen, okay, you, you don't want that to happen, all right? going to go to grandpa's, and we're going to throw rocks at you. Uh, why is this going on? In this culture and time, one of the most greatest values they had was this thing of shame and honor. In our time, nowadays, we say our greatest value, our asset is maybe time. I'd say, like, my time is so incredibly valuable. Maybe it's money. But in this time, it was shame and honor. It was being a family that had a reputation that, you know, you've lived good and lived customary. It's the only way you could trust other people in your culture and what's going on. If you broke that custom, if you broke that value, you brought shame on not just yourself, but your entire family as well. And so the only way to rid yourself of the shame that was brought on to you and to all your family, and if it was bad enough, can I tell you, it would not just affect you, it would affect your family, it could affect your kids, your kids' kids, your kids' kids. You understand how bad this is. If you did something so disgraceful to your family, to the culture of your people you were in, and the tribe you were with, your family would live the rest of their lives as outcasts because of what you did. And so the only way to rid yourself of this shame was to literally execute and say, listen, we want to remove the very existence of what's going on. We want no part of this going on in our family. We want to show that we do not uphold what they did and we're cutting ourselves off. Now to us, this seems very drastic, but to this time and culture, it was a huge thing. You have the example of the story of the prodigal son. If you remember that situation in Luke where it talks about the prodigal son comes to his dad and like, Dad, listen, I just want to go live the high life. Give me my inheritance. Let me go off. Let me be. Like, more like, Dad, you're dead to me. In this culture and shame, if Jewish people heard this, they're thinking, that dude needs to die. Like, let's do a stoning right now. And what's shocking is the father gives him his inheritance and let him go. This would have shocked them in this culture and time. As a matter of fact, in other situations, stories have where this would happen, when the son left, the family would actually hold a funeral for the son who's still alive as a, 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 a motion to everyone to show that they no longer had a son, that he was dead to them. Shame and honor was such a big, big deal. And she's pregnant. And according to Scripture, she should be stoned to death and Joseph's in a situation because her pregnancy would lead to one of two conclusions right here. E either one, Mary had cheated on Joseph. Can you imagine the shame that would have been brought on her family? People no longer want to buy stuff from your dad who works in this village. People no longer want to take care. You're suddenly desolate, struggling to provide for your income, everything. You know how hard and difficult this would be. Forever outcast, not just you, but your grandparents, your kids, cousins, everybody. Isn't that Mary part of your family there? Yeah, yeah, we don't want what you got. Either, either it was Joseph, either Mary had cheated on Joseph, or the second conclusion that came was this, is that Mary and Joseph had slept together. They, they, they were not faithful to the covenant they made before the covenant and everyone. And even in them, either way, they would have brought shame and made them both outcasts for the rest of their life. 
Now, now, why am I telling you all this? Because what's interesting is verse 19. It says, so her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man. Like, what, what, what is Joseph going to do? We know at the end, Joseph's going to divorce her, and yet he's being called righteous for this. What, what in the world's going on here? I mean, I guess he's holding up to Scripture. And, and can I just say, have you ever struggled with the virgin birth? Have you ever struggled with a situation? So did Joseph. When Mary's like, listen, Joseph, I know this sounds crazy. I'm pregnant. But I've been faithful. It's, it's God's baby. Like, I'd be like, a liar. You know, like, we're going on Mari or something. You, are, you know, you are not the father, okay? I, I don't know. Like, listen, he's in a situation here that, is, that he struggles with. And he's like, I- I'm going to divorce her. Joseph struggles with this. So if you're today struggling with the whole version of birth, listen, don't understand or do understand, so did Joseph. And, and Joseph's going to divorce her. You see, the problem for us is you know what happens next, Right? You know the rest of the story, but if you stop right there, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, what would you be thinking? It's hard to unknow what you already know. It's hard to take that out of your mind, out of your imagination, out of saying, I already know the outcome. Have you ever watched a movie and some plot twist happened and it just shocked you like, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. I did not see that this was going to happen. I didn't know Anna would freeze and her love would break the spell. And oh, I've watched too much Frozen, sorry. <laughs> Ruined it for you. Like, I get to the end, like, I'm not scared. I know what happens. I've seen Frozen 48,000 times. I know every outcome. When you know the ending, the plot no longer scares you anymore. You're not shocked by what's going on. But if you're reading this as a first-time observer and you see what's going on, you're thinking, man, what a poor guy Joseph is. What has he been through? I try to think me and Emily got married when I was 19. She was 20. We, we chose to be faithful until we were married. And I just imagine we're getting excited about the wedding plans, or maybe she's more excited than I am. But nonetheless, you know, we're, we're getting married. I just imagine, like, two months before we were getting married, like in, in November, if she came to me and says, Eric, listen, listen, I love you. I know we've been faithful. We've been so good. But I'm pregnant, and it's God's baby. What would I say? I'm like, you know what? You're awesome. I love you. Like, we're done. Like, we're over. Like, like, what would I be processing right there if I were in Joseph's shoes? What's interesting to me is unpack here is Joseph in the situation, what he does is he found, puts, provides unfound kindness to an unfaithful wife. See, there's a reason they call him righteous. There's a reason. You see, what happens here, and I'm going to unpack for you, is this. Joseph in this situation chooses to take the shame upon himself and take it off of Mary before he knows any of the rest of the story. But before an angel comes in and says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Take this wife as your own. Like she's truly holding the Savior. And like this is really God's son. Before he knows anybody else, Joseph chooses to take the shame upon himself. And it even says he didn't want to disgrace her publicly. You say, where are you getting that, Eric? Listen, understand. If Joseph publicly divorces Mary, if he publicly divorces his wife and says, listen, in front of everybody, hey, I want you guys to know Mary's been unfaithful, she's pregnant, and get this, she's saying it's the Holy Spirit's kid. Can you buy that? Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to divorce her so you guys know why I'm, like, I'm, why I'm good here, right? If he makes it public and lets everyone know, you have to understand, she will forever be shamed as the harlot that cheated on Joseph the rest of her life. And can I tell you, even after this, when he still takes her, we have other sources that come and say she was made fun of this for anyways. People say this all the time. Not only that, if he publicly divorces her, few men would ever consider marrying her. Very few men, unless it was very bad situations, would ever say, listen, I'm going to take this woman as my wife, even though I know she cheated on Joseph. I know this child's been out of weight. Like, I know this is not. She lied about it. I know all this. Very few men would ever take her in as her own. 
She's destitute from as a now 12 to 14 years old girl living the rest of her life by herself to raise this kid's room. If Joseph publicly divorces her and lets her know because of her unfaithfulness, the mohar and matan, the payments that have been made, would have to have been returned to the family. Like Joseph has stands, he's worked for several months to give out this kind of dowry and payment. The family's paid so much for this, they would get it all back because she's been unfaithful. She hasn't held up to her side of the contract of the situation that's going on. Can you imagine? Imagine what's going on. And from that point forward, Mary's family would be struggling financially because they have that kid in their household that cheated, that did that right there. If Joseph publicly divorced her, her family would live in shame. From that point on, like, even though her parents didn't do anything wrong, she'd live in shame. But he doesn't. What does he do? He chooses to privately divorce her so to not disgrace her publicly. Why does he do that? Listen, by privately divorcing her, understand what happened. People would think that he had changed his mind on the marriage. Hey, what happened to Joseph? Yeah, well, yeah, Joseph just Joseph decided to divorce her. Well, I didn't hear about it. Yeah, he kind of tried to do it quietly. What did he do? I don't know. He just changed his mind, I guess. Really? As time, as time would go on and become evident that Mary was pregnant, people would assume that Joseph was the father and that he had a change of heart after being intimate with her. As months went by, he looks like, hey, wait, Mary's pregnant. Wait, Joseph. Dude, seriously? That, that guy slept with her and just kicked her to the curb like that? Can you believe what he did? But by divorcing her privately, he, being Joseph, not married, would be seen as a dishonorable person in the party in the relationship. He would be the guy saying, listen, do you see what Joseph did to that woman? Like, he robbed her of all her dignity. He robbed her of everything she had. Look what he did to her. By Joseph divorcing her privately, Mary and her family would be legally able to keep that mohair and maton for their family. They would, that money would legally be theirs as child support and alimony to take care of Mary and, and his new baby Joseph. Joseph would take all the blame and the shame upon himself. I understand this. Mary and the baby's dignity would remain intact. Joseph is a righteous man. Now, please, I'm not advocating for divorce, but Joseph in this situation looks at it and says, the most loving thing I can do for this woman is to public, privately do this and take all the shame upon myself. You read this and say, well, why doesn't he just go ahead and marry her and keep the baby? Wouldn't that be the most loving thing to do? Again, in this culture, if he chooses to take her, what would happen to the shame? It would be on him and the kids and the family. They would together be living a life of difficulty, of hardship, of ridicule. But by doing this, all the shame comes on him, and mercy and love suddenly comes on Mary that wasn't before. Do you understand what he's doing? Joseph is a righteous man. He chooses, chooses to care for Mary and, and, and Jesus as best she can. Now, we know the rest of the story, what happens, and Jesus and, and an angel comes and tells them, say, hey, listen, what she's saying is true, and I want you to be the one to raise this child. I know what you're trying to do, and we'll unpack that next week. But the application comes in this. Listen, the big idea was grace comes with a sacrifice. Joseph in the situation chose to show grace, and Joseph is the one who has to make the payment. Grace comes with a sacrifice. Listen, any time, any time grace is shown, there's always a cost that's accrued. Any time you choose to show grace to someone who doesn't deserve it, a debt is made, right? But when a debt is made, a payment has to be made as well. If you choose, if someone has wronged you in your life, if something's something wrong with you, you are either going to have to demand that payment back or choose to eat that payment as yourself. I think of a situation when me and Emily were in Chickasha and uh, we had two cars at the church for a weird situation and I was by myself and I had a 16-year-old student with me. And I said, I need you to drive my car back for me. Just before, he was bragging about how he's never been in a wreck. You know where this story is going, right? 
So he takes my wife's car, and as we're leaving the parking lot, he backs into the church custodian's car and dents up my, my wife's bumper right then and there. He's freaking out. He's stressing. Now, I have a situation right there. A debt has been made. My car has been damaged. I can either demand the payment back from him and say, listen, you're going to have to work for this and pay for this or do something, or I can say, listen, don't worry about it. It's good. Either way, someone's making a payment for it, right? It's either me or it's him. In similar situations, even with things that's not monetary, listen, if someone wrongs you personally, hurts your ego, hurts, your, hurts you in some ways, cuts you deep to the quick in your heart and hurts you, you can either take it back out in vengeance and frustration on them and bitterness, or you choose to eat that and say, listen, I, I'm going to make the payment on myself. Grace will cost you something. It always does. Sometimes, let me tell you this, sometimes the payment that we demand, sometimes you have the right to it, but it still doesn't make it right. It's my right to do this. Joseph had the right biblically to divorce her and stone her and publicly shame her, to rid himself of any shame. But he said, that's still not right. I'm not going to do that. Why, why do I tell you this? Because listen, when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel story, you need to understand it's God that pays the price. It's God who takes the shame. You see, grace comes with a sacrifice, and Jesus Christ paid that debt, paid that payment on the cross for our sins. It's God who shows grace in those situations, who pays the price and takes on the shame. Listen to some of these passages, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. For the cost of our wrong action is death, but the gift, the free gift, something you can't buy back, something you can't pay for of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 2, 24, see, he, being Christ, himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ is the one who took the shame upon himself. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6, yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our, for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Christ is the one who makes a payment for the shame. You gotta understand in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, it tells us Christ is the one who lays down his right on our part. It says, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. You see, Christ and God are the ones who take the shame, take the pain, take the payment upon themselves. And so the point is this, listen, grace comes with a sacrifice. It always does. I don't know where you are in your life and what you're dealing with, what situations you feel like you've been wrong, what, what hurts you've been hurt, but grace, if you truly want to show grace to people, it always comes with a sacrifice. A payment has to be made. And either you can demand it back from someone else or you can chose to eat it and say, listen, I'm going to take the shame. I'm going to take the guilt all for this right here. Christmas reminds us it's all about. And so my question for you as you reflect, you think about is this question right here. How can you embody grace this year, this week, today? How can you go home to the loved ones that you know you need, to the people who have hurt and wounded you? How can you show grace like it's never been seen before, a grace that comes from Christ alone? That's the only place it could come from. How can you do that? As I'm saying this right here, be honest with yourself. Who is that person that I'm talking about in your life? As I'm saying, you need to go show grace. You're thinking, I'll do it for anybody, but that person right there, they don't deserve my grace. Who is that person 
that needs it. That's what Christmas is about. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Mary didn't deserve it. He's, he's done everything right. And yet he shows grace anyways. What is God calling you to do? Some of us want to wait for an apology. I'll show them grace as soon as they tell me they're sorry. Can I tell you something? Waiting for an apology is waiting for a payment. That's what it is. As soon as they tell me they're sorry, as soon as they own up to everything they've done, I'll forgive them. Listen, that's not grace. That's conditional grace. Grace says, listen, it's it's there whether you want it or not. I'm giving it to you. It's Christ who shows us grace. The question is, for some of you, is this. Have you accepted the grace of Jesus Christ in your life? Have you come to experience this gift of salvation that he's given to you? You say, well, isn't, isn't God's gift conditional? No, God freely gives it. The question is whether you want to receive it. Imagine this. Imagine Joseph going to Mary and say, listen, I forgive you. I want to marry you. And Mary says, you know what? I'm good. I don't want it. I'm, 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 I'd rather not. She still chooses to take all the shame. She still has to do it, but he's offered it. Many of us do that with our relationship with God. God comes and said, listen, I have this free gift for you if you want it. And we're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'd rather not. So the question is, will you choose to take it? And so I'm going to ask you to respond how God's leading you. If that person came to mind that you needed to go talk to, maybe you need to come up here and pray and say, God, give me the strength to do what I need to do. Maybe you need to talk to one of the elders who are going to come up and say, would you just pray for me? Would you hold me accountable to go outside this door and immediately talk to the person I know I need to talk to? Because I, I need to do it because God showed me grace and I need to do the same. If you're the person I'm talking to and you need to come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't, don't leave and think I'll do it next week. Come ask today. And so I'm going to ask with your head bows, your eyes closed, as elders come up, I'm going to ask you, I, I don't want this to become an empty ritual, I'm going to ask you to respond. You need to come up and say, I need, I need prayer. Would you just pray for me? Come do that. If you need to receive this gift, would you please come up? So I'm going to give you about a minute to respond in whatever way you need to. If you need to come up here and kneel, if you need to come up here and be prayed for, if you need to come ask about this gift of salvation, I'm going to ask you to do it now. As you respond however you need right now. If you need to get up, get up and come. for you guys this week was that you would give the best gift there is to give this Christmas and that's grace. Whether it's through sharing to someone else about the love of Jesus Christ and what Christmas is all about or maybe it's grace in your own life you need to show. There's no gift that can replace that. So if you just allow me to pray for us and just be dismissed and if you feel like you need to respond later, you didn't, you didn't have the courage to get it, it's okay, I'll be in the back, I'd love to talk to you. One of these elders would love to talk to you. Would you just bow and pray for me and 
we get ready for this morning offering as well. The ushers get forward, uh, come in place. Let's pray.